Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. My name is Greg Carter. I am the worship pastor over in Moscow, Real Life Moscow. And uh, I've been watching the services here for a couple years now. I knew Chris, um, your worship pastor. Uh, I've been um, kind of watching through the window of Facebook. And it's weird coming here for the first time. It's like people kind of know me, and I, I know some people. It's like I'm like your long lost cousin that you didn't know you had back here with family in some way. I know you mostly through Facebook and now in person. Uh, today I'm going to teach and continue the series called The Person of Christ. This is the series you're in, uh, in which uh, we talk about Jesus being God in flesh, but also this personal, relational Savior. And on the first week, Gary said, we don't need to know more about God. We need to know God more. And so I'm hoping to do that as we continue this series. I'm going to be talking about a parable today, uh, a parable in Luke chapter 7. It's called The Two Debtors. And it's this parable about infinite forgiveness and endless grace and unconditional love and extravagant worship. So I'm going to teach on that, this Jesus parable. But first, I want to talk about my favorite parable. And it's not from the Bible. It's a non-biblical parable about some fish. And I heard this about maybe over 10 years ago. And I think maybe I think about it maybe once a week. It seems simple, but all these layers of depth keep revealing themselves over time. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start off with the fish parable, and then I'm going to transition to the Luke 7 Jesus parable. And uh, these will kind of be interwoven throughout this time, and I'm hoping these two parables will work together in a way that give us new eyes to see the infinite ocean of grace that we're swimming in. So let's start off with this fish parable. We should have it on the screen. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the heck is water? What the heck is water? This is a parable about awareness It's a parable about having eyes to see the the layers of reality that we find ourselves in. And for me, this parable invites me to challenge my assumptions. It invites me to reframe and reshape the way I see the world and and maybe challenge my uh, conditioned perspective, my default setting. And also this parable invites me to ask questions. You know, I'm curious, what happened to that older fish Why does that older fish know about water and the younger fish don't? You know, did something happen to him? Did something traumatic happen to him? Did he see something? You know, my mind plays through these scenarios. I wonder, like, was this fish swimming along one day and he drifts away? He drifts away from his uh, school into uncharted regions he was told not to drift into. And as he's swimming along, he sees some food up towards the surface. And it looks perfect smells good, has maybe a slightly hypnotizing motion to it. And so he swims up to it and he takes a bite. And before he can savor the moment, before he can enjoy his snack, he feels a slight tug on the inside of his mouth. 
He doesn't even notice the pain at first. But then suddenly what feels like a thousand pounds of pressure starts pulling him up towards the surface. It feels like his face is going to be ripped off and separated from the rest of his body, so he frantically swims to keep up with the speed of the unknown force that's pulling him up. And eventually he reaches a surface where his world meets the unknown. He's pulled out of his environment into a new scary, mysterious environment. And he notices he can't breathe. His gills gasp for oxygen. He's taken up in a net, lifted up on a boat. And these hands grab a hold of him. These hands have dirt in the fingernails and oil and grease in the lines of the fingers. They, these hands hold him with a lack of compassion and with impossible strength. And this, this fish, he wiggles and he struggles, but he's starting to lose hope. He's starting to lose oxygen. He's starting to give up. And right when he's about to lose consciousness... He feels them take that sharp, stabby thing out of their mouth. He sees the flash of a camera, and then they release him, and he feels himself flying through the air and splashing into water. And the water feels amazing. He takes a deep breath. He's never noticed it before, the awe, the wonder, the beauty, the life-giving source of water. He's just so grateful. He's fully alive, fully aware. And he's like, I may have some pain. I may have some scars. I may have some PTSD from this experience. But I'm just so grateful. I'm so thankful. I'm so alive. I have new eyes to see this world that I find myself in. And he wants to go tell the other fish. He wants to reveal the mystery and unveil the open secret of their existence. But they have not been through what he's been through. They haven't seen what he's seen. And so they're not going to understand. They may hear his words, but they're not going to understand. And so one day he's swimming along and he sees these two younger fish swim in the opposite direction. And instead of forcing his long testimony on them and instead of lecturing them about the philosophy of water, he asked them a simple but thought-provoking, multi-layered question. And that is, hey boys, how's the water? And maybe, just maybe, it will cause them to think and reflect and question and wonder and maybe set them on course to see and perceive and understand and be grateful for water and all that water is to them. And this is why Jesus preaches in parables. Uh, Matthew 13, 13 says, though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. So Jesus teaches in parables because he's, he's speaking, but people don't see what's right in front of them. They don't, have ears to hear his message or understand. Maybe their view is obstructed by religious, legalistic uh, perspective. They're not seeing through the lens of the gospel, through the filter of the kingdom of heaven. So he speaks in parables so that we and the people around him in that context may question and think and reflect and maybe be set on course to see their world through a new lens, through 
the lens of the gospel through the filter of the kingdom of heaven. And so let's look at a Jesus parable in Luke chapter 7. Uh, now, this parable is um, wrapped up. It's tucked right in the story, this known story of the sinful woman who crashes a party and she throws herself at the feet of Jesus. She's crying. There's perfume. She's weeping. Let's down her hair. Uh, people are judging her. It's awkward. And everybody's looking at Jesus to see what he's going to say. And he tells a parable. So let's set this up. Verse 36 when one of the Pharisees named Simon invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So Jesus is invited to this, this dinner party by a Pharisee. And at this time, Jesus, right before this, Jesus was known. He was preaching all these great sermons. He's ministering to people. He's healing people. All, all eyes are on him. And the Pharisees are watching him and they're starting to question him, starting to challenge him. They're trying to entrap him. And I think that's why Simon the Pharisee invites him to this party. He wants to watch closely, interrogate, and trap. You know, because the Pharisees didn't have eyes to see, didn't have ears to hear or understand Jesus' message. You know, the Pharisees, um, they liked the rules and the protocols and the things that were appropriate and things that were kosher and they didn't touch certain things and they didn't go certain places. They knew the footnotes of the Bible. They studied um, academic religious commentary. They discussed religious philosophy. They loved the scripture. They loved church. But over time, this devolved into self-righteousness and judgment and ego and pride and they judged sinners. They saw themselves as above sinners. And here comes a sinful woman in this story. Verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. So it says the sinful woman we don't know her name in this scripture. Um, we know she has a reputation. We know that she's known as being an immoral, an immoral woman of the city, of the streets, the lowest of the lows, the bottom rung of society. But somehow she's heard, she must have heard Jesus preach about love and forgiveness and grace. You know, and at this time, Jesus is preaching that God loves sinners. And then he would actually go and interact with and love sinners. And this woman, she's so moved, she gravitates towards Jesus. Her faith propels her forward. In the next verse, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed his feet and poured perfume on them. So this was 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, a bunch of religious, judgmental men at a party, and this woman with a, rep a reputation who is not invited to the party crashes it. She falls at the feet of Jesus. She's weeping. 
lets her hair down. She's crying. There's perfume. Tears are pouring out. She can't stop it. They're just flowing out. Tears of regret. Tears of remorse. Tears, tears of shame, but also tears of hope and tears of praise. These are, these are holy tears, and they're just flowing out, and they're building up to a puddle on the feet of Jesus. And so she takes her hair, she lets her hair down, which in this time, in this context, this is immoral for a woman to take down her hair, but she doesn't care about protocol or appropriateness. She takes her hair down and wipes the feet of Jesus with her hair. She kisses his feet. You know, she's there to worship. She takes this jar of perfume, which was maybe the most costly, expensive thing that she owned, and she poured it all out on his feet. Didn't just sprinkle it, not just sprinkles, not just drops, but poured it all out. She's there to worship. She just wants to be in the presence of Jesus and worship him. And again, in the story, all these men, these self-righteous men, Simon the Pharisees and the And the other men are all watching with judgmental eyes and hostility is brewing. This is just too weird. It's too awkward. It's bizarre. It's over the top. This is not normal. You know, I wonder if you've ever been around someone who worshiped so extravagantly, so intimately raw that it made you feel uncomfortable. Have you ever experienced an expression of praise that made you say, that's a little too much. That's a bit over the top. That's not what I'm used to according to my denominational conditioning. This is weird. You know, I have this story. I I led worship in California before moving up to Moscow. And this, uh, this new girl worship leader joins the team. It's her first week on on team, and she's all in. She has this uh, divine powerhouse of a voice, but she worships through movement. She lifts her hand. She bows. The song of her heart comes out through her singing, but also through every fiber of her being. You can see that her, her surrender and her overall movement as she praised. And later that week, Uh, one of the pastors came into my office and he shut the door and he sat down and he said, that that new girl has a great voice, but we need to work with her on her stage presence. We need to calm her down. This is not uh, what we're used to. This is not what we do here. This is not, you know, according to my denominational conditioning, it's over the top. It's too much. Calm her down. Work on her stage presence. And I had to make a decision right there right there in that moment, and it was easy. I decided I was never going to limit the praise of anyone, never going to regulate or limit or calm down the praise of anybody. And I even encouraged her. Besides, when someone praises like that, you don't know their story. You don't know what they've been through. You don't know what they're fighting. Maybe they've been fighting all week fighting mind battles, fighting depression. Maybe, maybe they're giving, as they lift their hands, they're saying, God, I need you. I need you like my next breath. Maybe as they lift their hands, it's a sign that they've been released from the shackles that bound them before and they, they're new, made new, transformed. 
and it comes out in their worship with every fiber of their being. Right? We don't know their story, what their battles are, what they're fighting. I, I get to um, lead worship on Thursday nights over in Moscow. Uh, we have Restoration Night and Celebrate Recovery. And there we get to hear all these, these stories and these testimonies of people, their lives have been transformed and changed and made new. These people you know, lived through like hell on earth. They saw the, the grimy underbelly of the most ugly and unholy facets of humanity. They've gone down the spiral and the cycle of shame and sin and guilt and hiding and isolation and feeling broken, too far gone. And then they come into the presence of a savior who says that God loves sinners and they are transformed in his presence and they are made new and transformed, redeemed. And as a response, the natural response is to worship extravagantly. And sometimes that means to pour out everything that was in your alabaster jar, to pour out your old life. You know, I like those stories that remind us what we're swimming in. I like those stories that remind us that we're swimming in an infinite ocean of forgiveness and grace and love. And that makes me think of the backstory of the woman in Luke chapter 7. You know, why was she in that position? My mind plays out the scenarios. I wonder, you know, maybe she was married young, had a hardworking husband, three kids, and right as their life is starting out, her husband dies. Three kids, no job, no husband. She is fearing that she's on the verge of homelessness, begging for scraps with her and her kids, exposed to the heat, sleeping in the cold, overwhelmed by grief and mourning. And the only thing that overcomes that, that grief and that mourning is that motherly instinct, instinct to take care of your kids. I got to take care of these kids. I'll do anything. So in this time, she's searching for answers, searching for compassion, searching for love, and she has to make money. And so at this time, she finds herself drifting into uncharted regions, lured into a sinful lifestyle, pulled into the day-to-day -day activity of being a woman on the streets, a woman of the city. And she finds herself going down that downward spiral, that cycle of sin and shame and guilt and regret and isolation and hopelessness. And she feels too broken, too far gone, drifted too far from God. She feels she needs an infinite amount of grace, right? God might have enough grace to forgive just a little bit of sin, but what she's done is just too much. And then Jesus comes along, and again, he's preaching that God loves sinners, and then he's interacting with and loving sinners, and he's living it out. And she's so moved, she gravitates towards Jesus. Her faith propels her forward. She takes her jar of perfume. This is maybe the, the most costly, expensive thing that she owns. She might have used it in her profession, you know, the calling card of being a woman of the city. And she pours it all out on his feet, which represents her pouring out her old life. 
She's saying, what used to have a grip of me no longer has a grip of me. What used to have a hold of me no longer does. What used to scare me and worry me no longer does. She's transformed in his presence. She sees herself differently. She sees the world around her differently. She has eyes to see the infinite forgiveness and grace and love and compassion that she's swimming in. She's pouring out this perfume. And again, Simon the Pharisee, he's watching, judgmental eyes, and he's thinking, if this man Jesus knew who this woman was, if this man was a prophet, he would know who this woman was and he would want nothing to do with her. And Jesus must have known what he was thinking because he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he tells him a parable. So let's look at that parable. So Jesus says, a man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Right, so there's two people. They both owe money. One owes a little bit, one owes a lot. The loan master forgives them both, so who would love him more? And Simon answers in the next verse. Simon the Pharisee says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus says, yes, that's correct. You've judged correctly. The one with the larger debt will be more grateful, more thankful, and will worship more extravagantly. And then in the next verse, it said that Jesus turned towards the woman and said to, said to Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman making a mess on the ground? Her eyes are puffy and red. She's crying. She's pouring perfume everywhere. Do you see this woman? And of course, Simon can see her. His eyes are working. But it's more like, can you see this woman? Can you see beyond her reputation? Can you see beyond the surface? Can you see beyond what people have said about her? Can you see that she has value? that she's important? Can you see her humanity? Can you see her soul? Can you see her? And of course, Simon saw a sinner when he should have saw a soul. Simon was looking through the lens, through the filter of legalistic um, church protocol appropriateness, But Jesus, when he looked at that woman's eyes, when Jesus looked in that woman's eyes, he looks through the the filter of God's redeeming grace, through the lens of the kingdom of heaven, and he says three things to her. First, he says, your sins are forgiven. Second, he says, your faith has saved you. And third, he says, go in peace. Go in peace. This woman who must have been tormented by her guilt and weighed down by her shame. Jesus takes that that guilt and that sin from her heart and gives her the peace that transcends all understanding, the peace that doesn't make sense. 
And what I picture before this, I picture that woman must have walked around with a posture of shame around other religious people. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Sometimes when people are so burdened by their sin and their grief and their, their shame and their regret, sometimes they kind of they have this posture of shame where they tuck themselves into their chest and they don't make eye contact and they look down. It's this outward expression of the shame and the guilt and the burden of sin. But here it's like Jesus is saying, you know, lift your head. Lift your head. You are so valuable. You are important. You're wonderfully made. You're the righteousness of God. There's so much grace for you. You're swimming in an ocean of grace and forgiveness and love. And just like the fish who is fully aware of the reality that he found himself in and fully grateful and fully just in awe of the reality that he found himself in, this woman now has eyes to see what she's swimming in. And she's so grateful and she responds and prays extravagant worship. And the point of this parable is that when we see the magnitude of our brokenness and when we're fully aware of the immensity of his grace for us, the natural response is to worship to worship extravagantly, which is more than a song, more than music, more than what we do here on a Sunday morning. It transcends an order of service, transcends music. It is the worship of us pouring out every part of our life as an expression of praise and worship. It's kind of worship in which we pour out just every part of her life. And so I'll close with this. If, when you think about your life as an offering of worship, as a response to his grace, have you just been kind of sprinkling it out? Have you just been kind of letting drops out? Or have you been pouring it out? And I'll ask this, you know, what is in your alabaster jar? What are those things that have a hold of you? What are those things that you have a hold of and that you're not letting go of? What are those things that are obstructing your view and getting in the way of living a life of worship? You know, when we're fully aware, when we realize, when we have eyes to see the infinite forgiveness, the endless grace, and the unconditional love of God, the natural response is to worship. And that's worship through a whole, every part of our life being poured out as a response to His grace. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.